From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Now that the Bureau of Land Management headquarters is moving back to Washington, D.C., what does that mean for Grand Junction and Colorado's western slope in general? Then, Denver bussed children across town for decades in an effort to desegregate schools. A new play, Sojourner's Project Busing, explores the policy's legacy across generations. The creators have seen audiences inspired to share their own experiences. We've had people not want to leave afterwards. We had to like push them aside so we could strike the set because people are standing there talking. They're sharing their stories. Plus, the town of Meeker goes to the dogs. And how a ranching community, population 57, on the southern border of Colorado, got one of the premier football fields in the state. Hey, focus on three. One, two, three, focus. CPR is powered by your generosity. And when it comes to membership, monthly donations make a larger gift more manageable. It's why many donors are making the switch from annual giving to monthly giving, setting up their monthly Evergreen membership with a checking or savings account. It's easy to change how and when you give. Email membership at CPR.org. That's membership at CPR.org. And thanks for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The Bureau of Land Management moved its national headquarters to Grand Junction early last year. For some people, it was a dream come true. Decisions about public lands and energy development would be made in a region where they had an everyday impact. The agency's top officials and their big salaries would call the community home. Well, the dream collided with reality last week. Interior Secretary Deb Holland announced the headquarters will move back to D.C. As a, and as a consolation prize, Grand Junction will become the agency's new Western Regional Hub. One of the people who helped lure the BLM to Grand Junction was Robin Brown. Until recently, she headed a booster group called the Grand Junction Economic Partnership. Robin, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What's the general reaction you've heard from the business community? So I think there's a little bit of confusion as to what actually has taken place and what the, this Western headquarters will look like. I think the headline that the headquarters is moving back to D.C. is disappointing. However, the caveat to that is that like in the paragraph below that headline is that they're going that this administration is going to grow a Western headquarters footprint in Grand Junction, which we really like to hear. So let's talk a little bit about that headquarters. Interior Secretary Deb Holland promised that the new Western Western Regional Headquarters will be, her words here, robust, but she didn't offer any specifics. I'm curious what you think robust should mean. Is it a question of numbers of workers or the amount of decision-making power the folks there would have? My sense is both, uh, definitely in the number of workers. This administration was has been very, very critical of the previous administration, uh, which said they were going to put a headquarters in Grand Junction. I think there were estimates of two to 300 employees. And when the headquarters actually came here, it was between 20 and 40 employees. Um, and so I think that, and, and so hearing the criticism of that and hearing um, Secretary Holland say that she intends to grow a robust Western headquarters leads me to believe it will be more um, w- more what was originally promised, which is, I would hope to be more than 40 employees. The plan to move the national headquarters to Grand Junction didn't work. What makes you think a regional headquarters will materialize? 
So I, I don't know that I would agree that it didn't work. The headquarters moved here and now it is moving back. Um, so I, I don't, I, I, I guess I disagree that it, it didn't work. I think this is a lot more about politics than um, whether it was functional or not. And I suppose we should talk about some specific there specifics there. The Trump administration initially promised that there would be 27 jobs at the new headquarter to start. In the end, only three people moved from D.C. But there are, but there are actually more employees than that at the Grand Junction headquarters now. How many and where That's did right. the people come from? So I think there's about 41 employees, uh, and most of those jobs were filled from other parts of the country. They were not people that relocated from D.C., um, and they came from all over. Uh, and so they've you know, moved in and bought houses and put their kids in school. Um, the good news is that Secretary Holland did say that nobody would have to relocate if they didn't want to. And so I think those people that moved here because they wanted to live in Grand Junction will stay here. And I understand your office sent recruiting materials to BLM folks in D.C. You shared information about the area, housing, that kind of thing. What kind of response did you get? We got a great response. I mean, I think if you, you know, really want to work for the BLM, you probably have a lifestyle where you appreciate and spend a lot of time on public lands. And Grand Junction has public lands uh, all around us, 75 percent public lands in Mesa County. So it's a great place to live and work. And so people that applied for those jobs, got those jobs and moved into the area were excited to come uh, to a community like Grand Junction. And so um, what the Grand Junction Economic Partnership does is recruit business in a town, and a lot of that is the relocation of employees and making that as smooth as possible. So helping people find, helping spouses find jobs, helping get kids in school, helping find housing, um, just make it really as seamless as possible to move into the area. One of the draws of having the BLM headquartered in Grand Junction was having people living in the community who made hefty salaries. The estimate a couple of years ago was that those jobs would pay more than $100,000 annually. Even if that Western headquarters materializes, is it going to help Grand Junction economically? Yes, <laughs> that's an easy answer. So um, the you know what we figured out last year was the headquarters had an $11 million economic, economic impact in 2020. That's great. We love that. Um, even if these jobs are different and they don't pay as much as some of the executive leadership, uh, they're still going to be good paying jobs with great government benefits. And those will be good jobs. You know, our average wage today in Mesa County is about $47,000 a year. And most of these headquarters type positions, I believe, will be over that. Really, the entry level jobs that won't hit our average wage are more regional type jobs. Um, and so I any any. Um, addition of jobs above our average wage is a is a positive economic impact to us. And the hope is that more of that money would be spent in the community. The headquarters yeah. was officially in Grand Junction for less than two years. Is there a policy you can identify that changed because of it? Well, I would actually say it's been less than one year. They really started moving uh, the headquarters, I believe, last March of 2020. It wasn't complete until about October of 2020. Um, and so, and then it was all during COVID. So I think that it's hard, you'd be hard pressed to find any policy that happened last year due to the fact that everybody was working remotely. There was very little work being done between administrations. There was a lot of turnover. So I wouldn't say that policy didn't happen because it was in Grand Junction. I would say policy didn't happen because of the disruption that happened um, at the Department of Interior and the BLM due to the change of administration. Do you worry that Grand Junction could get caught up in a kind of pendulum situation that the next administration might change its mind and move the agency back? Yeah, absolutely. I think that everybody's worried about that. And in fact, we've, we're seeing that. And so the pendulum swung and the headquarters was moved out of D.C. to Grand Junction, which some people said would never happen. 
And now we're seeing this administration change course and bring it back to D.C. I do think that maybe the tempo of that pendulum slowed a little because, I, you know, we appreciate that Secretary Holland really did take her time on this decision. She came out to visit. She uh, you know, met with a bunch of stakeholders and saw the um, met with the headquarters. And so I think that pendulum, she's not moving the entire thing back to D.C. She's moving the headquarters back and then establishing a Western headquarters. And again, the details of that remain to be seen. But um, we're hopeful that it's it's not it's not the knee jerk reaction I think we thought we would see when the administration turned over. I know you've recently left your economic development position, but there is another ind- is there another industry that you think that Grand Junction might target? What's the next step there? So we have really worked hard over the last uh, I'd say eight years to diversify our economy. Uh, we used to be very extraction based. I mean that was the only industry that we had. Uh, And now what we've really seen in the last two years is true diversification. And so we focused a lot on tech and seen a ton of growth in tech, especially last year when so many jobs went remote. Uh, Construction remains strong. Healthcare is our largest employer. Um, And then, of course, we have a lot of government agencies because of the public lands between Forest Service, Department of Energy, BLM. Uh, There's no shortage of um, uh, jobs in that sector as well. So I think that we want to remain really diversified. Obviously, outdoor rec and tourism are also strong. Um, uh, strong industries in our economy. And so that's what we like. We don't want to, we've learned our lessons from the past to be too dependent on any one economy. Um, And so we really just want to have lots of pieces of the pie. Uh, We've really focused on remote workers this past year and seen a lot of growth there as well. So um, we're feeling very diversified. It's what got us through 2020 as healthy as we did get through it. Going back to that Western Regional Headquarters how can Grand Junction and the state's elected officials keep pressure to make sure that the Western Regional Office is robust, as Secretary Holland said? So I would just hope that we hold them to what they have promised, the way they, uh, this administration also, you know, was very critical of the previous administration and what they did and didn't do. You know, we've had tremendous support from Governor Polis and both Senators Hickenlooper and Bennett to keep the headquarters in Grand Junction. We appreciate that very, very much. Um, I think that played a huge role in the fact that we are going to keep some piece of that headquarters, whatever that looks like. And um, I'm sure that they'll remain really involved to make sure that that they've all repeatedly said, let's keep some sort of Western footprint. Um, And so that policy creation, research, all the things that go into what the BLM does um, can be done here in Grand Junction in an economy that depends on its public lands. As you reflect on the two years that the BLM headquarters were in Grand Junction, what stands out to you in terms of what Grand Junction gained? So we gained a lot of notoriety that we didn't have before. I mean, I think there are a lot of people across the country who had never heard of Grand Junction that now know where it is. Um, I think also it, it was a it was an incredible community-wide discussion about the importance of our public lands. Um, so it's one, a quality of life amenity, but it's also just a value that we that we share and have in common across, no matter what side of the political divide you're on, um, we all value our public lands. And so really, we've always been a community that could balance both economic needs and conservation on our public lands, which is why we originally said the BLM headquarters would be a great place for that. Um, and so those were great community conversations that we had. Um, and also just the collaboration that that was required to bring the headquarters here. Uh, we really came together as a community to, to make that happen um, and to campaign for it. Uh, but, you know, I think if you ask around the country, anybody that's plugged into this conversation, they recognize that Grand Junction is a place with a lot of public lands, immediate access to the outdoors, and a great quality of life. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
Robin Brown was executive director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership until last month. She's now CEO of the Colorado Mesa University Foundation. Denver bused kids across town to desegregate schools for decades, through the 1970s, 80s, and into the 90s. Sojourner's Project Busing, a new play from Idea Stages and Control Group Productions, explores the effects of the policy through generations. High schooler Amari Mason has to write a paper on the history of busing. It's something woven into her family's history. Her granddad and now her dad own and drive a bus for Denver Public Schools. She asks her grandmother, Big Mama Candace, to tell her their family's stories. Why are you asking me when everything you need is right there in that computer of yours? It's so boring reading that book, and I'm on the computer all day. Besides, you tell it better. Hmm. Is it that you don't want to take the time to learn about the sacrifices of my generation? Or is it that you're not interested in how our community was both inspired and torn apart by busing? That ain't none of that in your little gifts and memes. It's gifts and memes, big mama. <laughs> well, either way, you need to be educated about our history. And then you need to share it with others, especially your friends. Because so much of our black history is neglected in our schools today. It's an outdoor production, and a yellow school bus is the backdrop and part of the set. Between the Mason family story, puppets pop out of the windows to give historical context. For example, that busing in Denver was shaped by Rachel B. Knoll. She joined the Denver Public Schools Board of Education in 1965. She was the first black woman elected to public office in Colorado. Did you know? Did you know that after the assassination of Dr. King in April of 1968, Mrs. Rachel B. Knoll and a supporting board member took drastic action and introduced Resolution 1490, which called for a plan to end the de facto segregation in Denver Public Schools? That and several other resolutions were adopted. Yeah, but did you know that after that, all heck broke loose, resulting in protests, death threats, and eventually in violence and lawsuits? Coming to you live from the Colorado State Capitol in Denver, today we have a press conference surrounding the controversial busing mandate. I want you to remember that change was necessary. We must never give up our goal, equal educational opportunity for all. As I've told the Rocky Mountain News, we have black kids and white kids in school together today, but we really have segregation within the school building. That means it's not working as it should or as we thought it would. It's too easy to forget that the real focus should be offering equal educational opportunity for all students. Amari, her father, and grandmother share the challenges each of their generations face. Segregation and redlining, busing, and education disrupted by COVID-19. They also embrace the family and community support that uplifts them. I'm joined now by Alicia Young. She is the director of Sojourner's Project and the founder of Idea Stages. Norma Johnson is one of the co-writers. This is an intergenerational story of the Mason family and their bus. Norma, tell me more about this bus of theirs. It's real. It's a real live bus whose name is Chambo. 
but it's also a sentient being in the play and it's also the backdrop for the play and it holds the story, it holds the people, it holds the puppets, it holds everything. It's really the center. Alicia, what do you think that folks should know about Chombo the bus? Yeah, the bus, actually, when we had the story, that's where it came from. Patrick Mueller from the Control Group Productions Company and I were talking about, you know, how to make equitable theater in Colorado for all. And he came to me and he was like, so here are all the resources that I have. I have lights. I have, you know, some sound equipment. I have rehearsal space. Oh, and then last year we bought a school bus to do this show about the apocalypse in Denver and drive people around. But, you know, the real apocalypse happened, so we couldn't do it. What could we do with a bus? And I kind of was like, let's talk about busing. How does this bus and how does this family story unfold? I had always had this need to tell the experience of black and brown folks. So that's when we came up with the idea of Sojourner's Project. And the mission of that project is, you know, to cover the movement of black and brown folks around the world with or without their consent and the agency to tell their own story. So we started thinking about, you know, the the generation of, of before integration, which would be the segregated Uh, generation who was redlined into communities. And not that they weren't a happy community, but it was kind of othering, you know, that we do and making people feel like you're lesser than or not as important. We also had the next generation of integration and outcry. And then as an instructor in the Aurora Public Schools myself, I happened to see what happened to this generation now when they were moved from in person, in school, socially active, getting nourishment. So it was very interesting to the three of us as creators to talk about how each one of these generations had some kind of problem that was thrust upon them, but then successes on how they got through it. And that was the story I think we wanted to tell. It's not always about, uh, Miss Norma talks about struggle. We want to recenter off of things being a struggle, but talk about the victories. And I think that's what we do with this show. Norma, will you tell me more about that idea? Yeah, I work in uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusivity realms. And over and over, I've heard so much about the struggle my generation of elders, that's pretty much how people referred to the civil rights movement. Uh, That word is used a lot. And um, between just my own growth and what I see happening, the transitions and the transformations I see happening in the world now, there's an upliftment going on. There's a movement of people stepping up and stepping out and claiming who they are. I decided at some point that, you know, I don't want to use that word anymore because everything that we do and say has potency. And how about if we talk about how we engage, you know, how we uplift, how we transform? There's so many other words we can be using. So I'm, I'm kind of kicking that one to the side now and uh, inviting in, you know, some things that, that help us move forward, that help us move up and out. And part of how you do that, I think, is in the relationships between the Mason family and the generations of the Mason family and what they pass on to each other. Tell me more about that. So we have this other piece of magical realism. It is this journal that 
the grandmother has with her and it has information that has been passed on through oral history to a storytelling, scraps of maps, pieces of lace from a wedding gown, pieces of hair, baby teeth, freedom papers, you know, all of these, you know, successes that the family has. And I think right now, the way that we live with everything is a text, everything is a phone call or social media, we've lost that talking to each other and written word. And this piece of sentient, you know, creativity, we're talking about how families have to pass along their stories, their identity, and all that they are. So um, we have this journal and it was so much fun when we were writing this because we would get into these, oh my goodness, did you know that this thing happened? Or did you know about uh, what this word means? And we looked at the word sojourner and we broke it down. And it's like a Hebrew word, I believe it's pronounced ger, which um, means a person or people who do who are, are traveling through, they have temporary place, places to live. And then we looked at that word journ, and that is like daily prayer. Journal means like the time that you sit down and you mark daily prayer and communion with your elders, your ancestors, your family, with the universe, with your God, your religious or spiritual beliefs. And so it was just interesting, like how all of that, you know, played beautifully uh, harmonically with the story that we wanted to tell about, you know, we need to have that time where we stop, listen, talk you know, create and interact with the ones we love and get to know more about them. I I regret not knowing more about my ancestors and my elders and and things that I may have missed out on because they've gone on. And this is another piece that we're trying to give back to the community and say, hey, sit down and have a conversation. Write it down. Write the stories. I'm speaking with Alicia Young. She directed the Sojourners Project Bussing. Normo Johnson is one of the play's writers. It runs through September 26th in Denver, and it's the debut live production of Idea Stages. Young founded the organization last summer. You researched Denver's busing history extensively to write this story. You didn't just read what's already been written. You spoke with many people who were bussed and whose parents were bussed, or who were affected by busing in other ways. Norma, how has that research experience been? Oh, well, that's been rich, a rich, rich, rich of it. Yes. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, there's, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything that is, is better than um, a real story, you know, and people have been gracious and excited about sharing Um and, and I, I suspect that in some ways, people really might not have been asked these things or asked about these experiences of their lives in that way. Um, so uh, the sharing has been uh, enormous, really. Uh, people have been eager. Uh, we've even had people contact us. <laughs> can, can I share my story? Just to hear those stories, to have a little black girl and a little white girl say, I met you on the first day of fourth grade and you were my best friend and you were so kind to me. I fell in love with you immediately. And then to have another little girl say when they were talking about the colored kids were coming to school, she was standing on the on the pavement looking for purple and green and blue and yellow people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she was like. There's only black and brown people. What? 
And Norma, would you not agree? It is so much difference in reading research as opposed to hearing people's experience and their passion and their sadness and all their empathy and sympathy for one another. And we can imbue that into our story. Don't you agree, Norma? Absolutely. And in fact, I mean, let's get real. We're in the performing arts for that very reason, to bring stories to life, to make them human, to have real people be expressed, you know, and the stories didn't just end with research. Uh, we're still, you know, having people contact us in, in our audience for our shows so far. We've had people not want to leave afterwards. We had to like push them aside so we could strike the set because people are standing there talking. They're sharing their stories. They're inspired by the show. And, and it's just, you know, stimulating all kinds of memories. You mentioned those moments that you were talking together as you're writing this where you learned things that you're like, did you know that this is the way it was? Was there a moment about Denver's busing history that stands out to you or a person even? You know, I, I want to start with one of the things that stood out to me and steeled my resolve to get this project done was that there were so many people who we interviewed or had surveys from where we asked them, do you know why you were bust, or do you know who Mrs. Rachel B. Noel was? And they had no idea. It hadn't been even taught to them. They were like, no, it was just, I got on, I got up at six o'clock in the morning, got on the bus at 6.30, rode across town for an hour, did my work, came back home, couldn't be a part of extracurriculars. Or if I did, you know, my parents had to make a special way to come back and get me. So just knowing that Sometimes we lose our own history, we lose our own stories, and and just being able to bring knowledge to people who were in the midst of this, that was the most powerful kind of gift back that I think we gave to people in the community who spoke to us. Mm-hmm. Norma? Yeah, and you know what, one of the things that stood out for me, it just, whoo, just kind of stuck with me was when I heard, um, and this was through an interview that um, I think Lisa did about a black teacher who taught in one of the white schools. There were very, very few who did. And white parents showed up and stood at the back of her classroom for months and their children didn't feel that they needed to respect her. I remember when I heard about that, it hurt me to my core. That was just very touching to me. Yeah. Stood out. And you know, Avery, I just wanna piggyback on that. One of our volunteer ushers from the church that we're at, she connected with that. She said, that was me, that was my story. The principal had to come in and chew the parents out and tell them, okay, the kids need to learn now. You need to go so she could have control and power in her own classroom. And as an educator, I couldn't even imagine. I probably would have left. That is so much disrespect, and I can't imagine. Let's bring in another of the show's writers now, Adrian Martin Fullwood. Welcome. Hi. I'd love to hear from each of you. Is there a scene or a moment from Sojourner's Project that you're most proud of creating? Adrian, why don't you start? My thing is, is as, you know, uh, uh, I'm one of the older ones in the group. 
Um, <laughs> so I went through the busing. Uh, I'm from Denver, Colorado. So I know I've seen a lot of growth from the time that when I was young and going to school. So a lot of those things I had forgotten, a lot of the history. The thing that I like about it is how we began to do our research and, and listening to interviews of other people. And I'm like, oh my God, I remember that. I remember this. I remember that. So it was bringing back the past in a good way. It wasn't, it's not like uh, rehashing something that was terrible. You know, the stories that, hey, you know, this particular thing happened when we were on the bus. Yeah, we did have fun on the bus. It wasn't all gloom and doom. We did have fun. You did meet a lot of people. I had, was not really aware of playing tennis. I know it sounds like something of the norm now, but and golf. Who does tennis and golf? You know, that's just something we didn't do in our neighborhood. But because we were bused to other areas that had more discretionary income to do those type of things, guess what? We were exposed to those things. So we were exposed. Not everything was of bad from the busing. So I now have grandchildren. I need to teach them so they don't forget the past. Those that forget the past are condemned to repeat it. We don't want that to happen again. So I know you asked the question, what do you like specifically? It's all of the history. It really is. What do you tell your grandkids about the history and about your experiences of busing now? You know, actually, I have not told them, but because of this project, I will now tell them. And that's what I was saying earlier, how you've suppressed so many things of the history until, you know, there's so much going on right now. There's this the world is moving so fast. It's so fast, so rapid. The days are getting shorter. The years are getting shorter. And people are, are leaving this earth very fast. It's said to me, slow down, teach some of the things that you've forgotten. And I mean, just the script itself, our lovely Norma, she's, uh, I'm telling you, that, that lady is on top of it. So we think that we're done with our, our um, research and we have a file that has, you know, all the research that we've been reading and studying. And Norma says, oh my gosh, guess what I found? So she has all this information and just keeps coming at us, keep, even though the script has already been written. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't know that. And we're all like, I didn't know that either. Well, shucks, I wish, next time we'll just put it in the script. So this script may be about a book before we're done with it no. uh, because we just keep adding and adding. <laughs> Man, there's so many moments. I'd say what touches me the most is, is there, it's a more general thing. It's like how it all came together because I love Chambo the bus and I love the puppets and I love the did you knows and I love the dancers and I love the actors. So for me, it's more about that. It's like how each component is so special and woven together and weaving is, is kind of one of our themes and woven together, it's created this, you know, magnificent piece. And, you know, I want to speak to the other side of the stage, the other side of the curtain. Um, it was important to me because I have an organization called ideastages.org for everybody that wants to check us out. And I've been an actor since I was five years old. I've been a writer since I was able to write. I've always like been that kid, like, come on, let's put a show in the backyard and I'll be the director and the, uh, and the actress and the singer, you know? So it was important to me to give opportunity and equity to those who don't normally get that in this industry. 
and I wanted to have an all black woman led creative team. I got that. And I'm a dreamer. Avery, I, I dreamt about this and I keep telling them, I dreamt, for, I dreamt you up. I dreamt about you. And I got that. And then I got the all black designers. We have an awesome black production stage manager named Whitney Roy. She is, I have to brag on her. She is a student at USC and she and her best friend, Trayvon Coleman, drive almost two hours daily for rehearsals and for these shows to come and stay because it was important to me to empower Black women, to empower Black folks. And that's what happened. When you make a delicious stew and everybody brings a little bit and puts in the pot, hey, you don't have to do anything, but make sure you watch the pot and don't let it burn. So (laughs) did a great job. Lisa, Idea Stages, you started it just last summer. This is the debut live production, and Idea stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access. What is next for Idea Stages in the Sojourner Project? <laughs> you know, you're sneaky, Avery, because <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of Sojourner's Project is such a powerful medium to tell so many stories, I think. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put the the, the surprise out there, but I'm just going to tell you, look out. And and the other thing is we've had offers to bring this story to schools. And that's probably our next <laughs> hurdle to get over is figuring out how do we do that? Because this show is a beast. These three creatives and some of our other production folks, we're going to sit down and figure that out next. I just want to thank you each so much for sharing. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. I I appreciate being here. Oh, this is lovely. Thank you so Thanks, much, Avery. Avery. Adrian Martin Fullwood and Norma Johnson co-wrote Sojourner's Project Bussing with Alicia Young, who directed the production. It's the debut live production of Idea Stages. Young founded the organization last summer. Sojourner's Project Bussing is an outdoor performance in the parking lot of Denver's Rising Star Missionary Baptist Church. It runs through September 26th. Tickets are available online at sojourners.live. There's also an interactive digital history gallery online. When we come back... Sheepdog trials are back on in Meeker. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The new thriller from Peter Heller is our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. The guide rejoices in nature and, like Heller's other novels, dabbles in the dark side, as an old friend pointed out. She said, dang, where did all this darkness come from? I mean, the teenage boy that I knew wasn't that dark. I'm Ryan Warner. Free tickets to our virtual event September 30th at cpr.org slash turn the page. Sponsored by Madison Taylor Marketing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Every September, the small town of Meeker grows by more than 100 dogs. The farming and ranching community hosts one of the premier sheep dog trials in the United States. After a pandemic pause in 2020, the competition returned this year, and CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg was there. Walking around the Meeker Classic Sheepdog Championship Trials, it can seem pretty sedate. A few miles out of town, penned-up sheep wait to be herded around a vast, deep green field. Surrounding it, people amble through a festival area, past a vendor selling signs that declare, Border Collies leave paw prints on your heart. But sit in the stands. 
and it can be a roller coaster. Look at that! So much elation as a crouching dog finally urges a flock of reluctant sheep into a pen. I ask Rita Larson and Jean Kochisberger if they get nervous for the dogs. Yeah, I go home exhausted. <laughs> we work as hard as they do. The friends have traveled here for years. Larson from Grand Junction, Kochisberger from Magnolia, Texas. And we've had through rainstorms, snowstorms, wind. We've done it all. Neither own Border Collies. Larson used to, but hers died years ago. With a fond smile, she says these dogs are why they keep coming back. They have such heart, and they work so hard. They're just great. Smart and loyal, they hardly even bark. Okay, that's Clem, and her owner says barking is how she claps. But most of these sheep dogs are like Kip, silently taking in the whole scene. He's obsessed with sheep. He's obsessed. If you watched him before the our run, he was watching, hypnotized by the sheep. Handler Diana Silvestri says in the five years they've competed together, Kip has transformed. You take a, a, a little puppy that's afraid of everything, and suddenly they become this self-confident powerhouse and bring you along in so many different ways. The duo from Oakland, California, even made it into the finals today. They won't win. But Silvestri is honored to be here. This is one of the best trials in the United States, if not the best. In a town of just a few thousand people. This all started in 1987 because Meeker needed an economic boost. Someone suggested a sheepdog trial. And former mayor Gus Holandris decided to put one on with no previous experience. There's no formula. You just get lucky and never quit. That first year drew 76 dogs and a few thousand attendees. It's more than doubled in size since and brings in about a million dollars each year to the local economy. Holandris has traveled a lot and says he's met Meeker Classic fans all over the world. Let people know you're from Meeker, Colorado, and all of a sudden you're starting to talk dogs. Holandris and his wife Christine are watching the field intently as a famous handler uses a whistle to communicate with his dog, guiding sheep through a series of complex moves. He made it, he made it, he made it. All they need to do now is persuade the sheep wearing collars into a pen without touching them and close the gate. But the sheep keep trying to escape. Holandris looks nervous. Time is running out fast. 34 seconds. Can you believe that? (laughs) Come on. And they started with 30 minutes. Soon, it's 10 seconds left. Nine. Eight. Please go. 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 They make it with only two seconds remaining. See what I mean? Isn't that exciting? I mean... They would do this for Tom Brady, you know? <laughs> After the delirium, I find handler Scott Glenn and his 10-year-old sheepdog, Alice. He got lucky, he says. If I could have got lucky about 10 minutes earlier, my heart would be better sheep. But for Glenn, here from Alberta, Canada, that uncertainty is part of the addiction. He says this is something you can never master. 
you'll have the odd time you'll be close to mastering it, but you'll never master it. Because there's, for one thing, there's another beast out there that show you that you're not as smart as you thought you were. <laughs> he doesn't know it yet, but they've won. Next month, they'll compete at the national championships in Virginia, where they've also won before. Glenn hopes Alice will get to be top dog one more time before she retires. In Meeker, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. There is a tiny town in southern Colorado, less than a mile from the New Mexico border, that many of you have probably never been to. On a recent trip there, CPR's Vic Vela met many of the 57 residents of a little place called Branson. He brings us the story of how one of the poorest school districts in the state ended up with a half-million-dollar football field. Well, I'm working on a building... There's lots to do in Branson, Missouri. There's comedy shows, theme parks, and an Elvis impersonator. Wait a second. I'm being told this story's about Branson, Colorado? Uh, what can you do there? Zero restaurants, zero gas stations. It's in the boonies. That's Gavin Sanchez. He's one of just a few dozen students who attends the only school in Branson in this remote ranching town in Los Animas County. There's a church, a post office, some farm equipment, and that's about it. Branson High School senior Brody Doherty is one of the town's 57 residents. There's more dogs in town than people, and you kind of you get to know everybody's names and everybody's grandma. So, and it's, it's one big family, but I mean, you, you get to love it. You, t- you learn to love it. Do you know everyone's dogs' names? Pretty much, yes. So yeah, Branson's tiny, but it's got itself a pretty darn good high school football team. Hey, focus on three. One, two, three, focus. The Branson school is much too small to fill a regular size football team roster, so the Bearcats play six-man football where most everyone plays offense and defense. Peyton Cranson is one of the team's best players. Everyone needs to be able to play every position. Everyone is eligible for a pass, and everyone needs to be an open field tackler. And the game can get a little confusing if you're not used to it. Sophomore Brendan Sanchez is Gavin's brother. He put me in on offense. I, I like defense a lot because I don't have to memorize all these plays. And I'll play, he'll tell me to do like tight right or something, and I'll be like, what? And then I'll be like, hey, coach, what's this? And he'll be like, you're supposed to memorize this. I'm like, but I don't play this position. He's like, well, you're going to have to start playing. Go, go, go. Brody, call it out. Until recently, the Bearcats had largely gone unnoticed by most of the world. That was until a group of opposing coaches refused to play in Branson anymore because of their field. The coaches were worried that their players would get hurt playing on what's been described as the worst football field in America. Gavin Sanchez remembers what it was like. It was all dirt. There was no uh, no really mark indications. It was a bunch of gopher holes, snake holes. You, it's an, it was easy injuries. Gopher holes and snake holes. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun one. Would any actual gophers pop up while you guys are playing? Actually, yes. We actually had a gopher come to the field, and we had to smoke him out and get him taken care of. Okay, Coach Adam Lucero. 
it couldn't have been that bad, right? It really did too. That's not an exaggeration. It was uh, it was a cow pasture. It's what it's what it was. We turned it into a football field the best we could, but there was a lot of times I was pulling uh, um, cactus out of my players' arms in. <laughs> You see, Branson doesn't get a whole lot of rain usually, and the water it does get from nearby springs doesn't provide nearly enough water to maintain a garden, much less a football field. Brad Doherty, Brody's father, is the school's athletic director. We were just hoping and praying that it somehow would grow, and we just couldn't keep up. Even with prairie grass and drought-tolerant grass and whatever we happen to have growing, uh, we couldn't beat the moisture or the groundhogs. So the team needed a new field. Problem is, they don't have a few hundred thousand dollars laying around to pay for it. More than half of Branson's students qualify for free or reduced lunches. So Brad Doherty reached out to some local TV stations to try to drum up support for a campaign to raise money for a new field. And the news spread faster than a gopher being smoked out of a hole. Pretty soon, national news outlets were doing stories on the team situation, and as the attention grew, so did donations. So every day I would log into PayPal and it was amazing. You'd log in in the morning and you a new thousand dollars and then you'd log in at lunch, another five or six thousand dollars. And I had it set to notify my phone and I had to turn those off because it was dinging all hours of the day. Money was coming in from all over the place, California, New York, even the United Kingdom. $500,000 was raised in just a few months. You take care of business on the field so you can have fun off the field. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes, yes, sir. Now, this town of 57 people, and double that of dogs, has one of the premier football fields in all of Colorado. Fancy green astroturf that doesn't need watering. End zones painted in the team's orange and black colors with a Big Bad Bearcat logo at midfield. A half-million-dollar field of dreams in a town that doesn't even have sidewalks. Coach Adam Lucero. People heard that story and said, hey, we need to help these kids out. I know we don't know them. Um, they may live in a different continent. We, they literally, we had donations from Australia, and um, they were on board for it. They saw uh, human beings in need, and I think, you know, when it comes down to it, we'll, we all kind of pull together in that sense. You guys want a program today? Three dollars for The Bearcats hosted their first home game of the season, debuting their new field in front of a few hundred out-of-town spectators who watched the game in folding chairs or from the backs of pickups along the sidelines. Safety on the play for two points for the Bearcats. Yes. The Bearcats were just too much for the Deer Trail Eagles to handle, and there was no way Branson was going to lose their first game on their new field, one that wouldn't be here without the generosity of others. Rita Hawkes has worked as a janitor and a bus driver for a school in nearby Kim, Colorado for 50 years and has known many of these players since they were little kids. She couldn't believe her eyes when she saw the field for the first time. I had a, I seen a comment on my Facebook about that the Denver Broncos were going to uh, be at some football games. While I posted back, they ought to come to Branson. Maybe that'll be the next big thing Branson does. Because clearly, this town can do anything. Eat your heart out, Branson, Missouri. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News.
Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. We'd love to hear from you. You can connect with us on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters or send us an email. Colorado Matters at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.